Open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We are in another wedding season here at uh, Foothill Bible Church. There were two weddings yesterday, uh, almost simultaneously, two different locations here and in another. And there are several more weddings that are on the docket in the next month and a half or so. So we are in another, another little mini wedding boom. And that's all good. And uh, it just speaks about people's uh, hope for the future. I was reading this morning, Carol and I were reading this morning, the church's uh, through the year Bible reading plan. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul is speaking there about this present distress. And he says that, you know, in light of this present distress, you may think about uh, deferring uh, marriage or perhaps not even marrying at all. And Carol and I were talking about that and the implications of that and so forth. And I thank God that we are uh, in a country, in a time, in a place, and in an age where there are difficulties to be sure. But there is still a sense of hope, a sense of optimism. People are still getting married. And uh, believers are marrying and uh, raising, having and raising children. And that is all a very wonderful and healthy thing. And so just really blessed to uh, be part of all of that. Now, as anyone uh, knows who has ever been involved in planning a wedding, it is a, there are a number of uh, difficulties associated with planning a wedding, some of them of our own creation. But uh, of those difficulties, perhaps none is more difficult than uh, narrowing things down to a guest list. Preparing a guest list for a wedding can be a very difficult uh, process. And and the reason is, is because typically there are limited resources. There are limited space considerations. And for most people, there is a limited budget. And so when you have a limited budget and you have limited space considerations, you need to begin to go through your guest list, of course, and you need to sort of figure out... uh, a-lists and B-lists, and, and I don't have to tell you that. You know what I'm talking about. And it can be a very agonizing process. Who do we invite? Who do we pass over? Well, this morning, uh, before us here in Matthew chapter 22, we have another parable. And this is a parable about a wedding banquet. Now, the, the problem in this parable, the problem with this wedding banquet is, is not who to exclude from the invite list. That's not the problem. The problem is the stubborn refusal of the invitees to attend the wedding to which they have been invited. This is the third kingdom parable, the third of seven kingdom parables told on Tuesday of the Passion Week. The first three are spoken to primarily the leadership of the nation, although this one widens beyond them, and they are parables of judgment, and then there are four parables that follow a little later in the day spoken to the disciples. This particular parable here in Matthew 22 addresses the issue of why it is that so many people are excluded from Messiah's kingdom when the invitation is open to all. How can that be? How can it be that a wide open invitation 
eventuates in very few responding. I've titled the message and part one this morning, part two next week, many invited, few respond. Many invited, few respond. Now, the parable, as we're looking at it together here, what we'll see is that through the ages, many have been invited to participate in Messiah's kingdom, but in the end, comparatively few respond to that great invitation. Now, the parable is uh, broken down for us in uh, three scenes. So if you think of it as a play, there are three scenes to this play. It is a a three-act play or a three-scene play and a conclusion. We're going to be looking, uh, all told, at verses 1 through 14, but not this morning. This morning, we're going to look only at the first scene, and that's in verses 1 through 7. So scene 1, verses 1 through 7, this week, next week, we'll come back for scenes 2 and 3 and the conclusion of this particular parable. So, scene 1, verses 1 through 7, Israel's rebellious rejection. Scene 1, Israel's rebellious rejection. Now, to set the the background here again for us, Jesus has uh, confronted the leadership of the nation with their refusal to receive him and believe upon him as their Messiah. And the crux of the issue before us and before him at this time on Tuesday morning is the question of authority. And it's, been, it's being repeatedly worked at. The, the Sadducees, that is the chief priests and the elders, are continually hammering away with Jesus over the question of authority. Who is in authority over the nation? Is it you who claim to be Messiah or is it us? And it's this tug of war going on in the question of authority. And Jesus uh, responds to them with several parables here that are, that are all related to the issue of authority. And so at the end of the second parable, as he speaks to them, verse 45 of, of Matthew chapter 21, the, uh, the chief priests and the, Pharisee, and the uh, elders and the Pharisees realize that the, these parables of judgment that he has told are directed primarily at them. They get it. They recognize it says he understood he was speaking about them. The response to this is to not to repent, uh, but instead to double down and to go away and to scheme together how they might arrest him in order to sweep him aside and, and, and ultimately to murder him. But they are, they are prevented from doing so temporarily because the people, he is so popular with the people, they consider him to be a prophet. So in light of that, Jesus here in chapter 22 speaks a third parable. Jesus spoke to them, verse 1, again in parables. He spoke to them again in parables. Now, it is likely that the leadership here is, is not listening closely to this parable. They've, they've kind of figured it out, and they've rejected him at the end of the second parable. So they're, they're probably not listening as closely here, but he is speaking to them. But, he's, but beyond that, he is speaking more broadly to the nation as a whole. So this parable, this third one that we're looking at, the parable here of the marriage feast, speaks to the leadership of the nation, but it widens and speaks through them and beyond them to the nation as a whole. So this parable widens out the judgment to the entire nation. So verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, 
saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So there is a correspondence to this scenario, this story of a king who gives a wedding feast to his son and something to do with the Messiah's kingdom. Now, a little background would be helpful because wedding customs and traditions are not identical across cultures. And in order to understand this parable, we need to to understand, at least at an abbreviated level, the wedding traditions and customs among the Jewish people of the first century. Because this this, uh, parable is built off of those recognizable customs. So just a little bit of information on that. Typically, the wedding process in the first century among the Jewish people would unfold like this. A man would, uh, would take an interest in a young lady. Typically, the man was older than the, than the young woman. But he would take an interest in this young woman. And he would approach her father. And he would seek permission to uh, marry the man's daughter. And, uh, and the, man would, uh, the father would grant that permission or not. If he granted that permission, then they would enter into what was called a betrothal period. This was a formal arrangement. This was more formal than an engagement process that you and I are familiar with. This betrothal period could last up to a year or so and could only be severed by divorce. So they were considered married from that point forward in virtually every way except sexually. And so they would enter into this betrothal period. During the betrothal period, the young woman would go about preparing herself to be wed. The young man would go about preparing himself to take a wife and to establish his own household. And so they had this year period to work on these things. Often they would be somewhat far apart from one another during this year's period. Now, after the betrothal period was to come to an end, whatever was established as the time period, there would be a wedding ceremony. The wedding ceremony would occur at the home of the father of the bride. The groom would come to the home with a few of his friends, and uh, there would be a wedding conducted there in the the young girl's home, uh, even by her father. So it was a you know, it was a, a much more informal sort of wedding ceremony that would occur. Following the wedding ceremony, the groom would take his bride along with his uh, friends, her attendants, and so forth, and there would be a procession back to the groom's home, which was often uh, the father's house. Often it would, his home that he would first establish would be attached to or part of his father's House, And so he would take his new wife back there, and there would be a, a wonderful time of feasting. Typically, again, about a seven-day feast would occur, and it was a time of tremendous celebration. There would be singing, there would be dancing, there would be all kinds of storytelling about the young couple and so forth. There would be a, a tremendous time of celebration. There would be all of the food and wine and all that would be attendant in a feast in the first century. And it was a very, very important event in the social calendar of the community. That first night, the young couple would slip away at some point in the night to a private place and they would consummate their marriage. And so that was the basic approach that occurred there in the first century. 
As I say, it was a very much a com- community affair. It was a time of incredible rejoicing. Uh, in, in a life that often for rural people was a very hard life, this would be a highlight time. This would be a time to sort of kick back and, and enjoy the abount of full harvest of the Lord God. So it would be great rejoicing. There would be abundant food. There would be abundant drink. Uh, you'll, uh, your mind perhaps will reflect to John chapter 2 where Jesus is at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee, you remember? And it's a time of great celebration. And he participates in the celebration by creating uh, over 120 gallons of the finest wine uh, to help the feast along. So it is, a, it is an incredible time of, of uh, celebration. And the, and the volume of alcohol that he created that day speaks of the size of the crowd that would have been attendant at this week-long celebration. Listen, to turn down an invitation to a wedding uh, would be uh, the very height of bad manners. It It would be a direct insult to the family who had invited you to come. It would be to spurn their hospitality. It would be to insult their dignity. There there would be little you could say or do that would create a greater offense than to not come to their wedding. So this is very, very important to understand that. Only the most hardened person, only the most um, uh, recalcitrant uh, sinner would refuse to come and to participate in what was the, the, the greatest and most joyful event that the community could have. Now, In the case of this particular parable here, you see in verse uh, 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So this is not just a run-of-the-mill first century wedding feast. This is the king's son's wedding feast. All right, well, so what? Well, here's the so what. The uh, son of the king would be the heir to the throne. So you are now talking about, first, your sovereign Lord is giving the feast, and it is for his chosen son who will be your heir. You will likely never know another king as long as you live. Beyond that, when a king throws a party, it's a party. His resources are virtually unlimited. So this is going to be an amazing banquet that will supersede any banquet possible. A once in a lifetime affair. Beyond that, when the king issues an invitation, it is, um, it is more like a, a command performance. Okay, the king may issue you an invitation that says we would like you to come for our wedding. But what he means is you will be there at this event. Okay, you don't tell the king, I am sorry, but I'm kind of busy that day. When the king orders you to appear at his son's wedding, you will be there. You will be there. You don't refuse the king. Now, the actual wedding and the feast, you know, these are very different than what we have. But there's more indifference here that we need to to sort of understand as we begin to make heads and tails out of this particular parable. And that is the means by which people were invited to the wedding and the subsequent feast. That is very different than the way we do it. We now often uh, use online invitations and, and all of these sorts of things. And half of us forget to RSVP even for them. But it was very different in the first century. Very different. 
To attend a week-long celebration takes planning. It takes planning. Listen, it takes planning on the part of the people who are going to throw a week-long party. If you've just thrown a dinner party for an evening, you know how much preparation is involved. Can you imagine hosting a banquet, a feast, that's going to include the community at your place for a week? There's a lot of planning involved. A lot of planning involved. Beyond that, to attend a week-long celebration takes planning on the part of the invitees, right? You just, you know, you just can't walk away from things for a week without making some serious planning on who's going to take care of the kids while you're gone for a week. So there's planning involved at both ends. And so uh, in order to do that, the process of communication, uh, again, in the days before instant rapid communication, you know, texting and whatever it is, it's a a more involved process. So here's how it goes. It's a twofold process. The first thing that happens is that months in advance, you, you send out invitations. You communicate by invitation, not in writing, but orally. So you send out oral uh, invitations. And uh, it, it needs to go out as wide and far as your guest list. So if you've got family and friends that don't live in the same town, you obviously have got to make plans for that. So you send out this communication many, many months in advance, and you say there's going to be a wedding and a feast at my home on a particular day. This gives your guests time to uh, make plans to come. It it gives time for them to communicate uh, back that they plan to be there and for that to return back to you. And so just that whole communication process, it takes time. And so that would be the beginning part of it. Then as the day of the feast would draw near, you would again send out by uh, oral messenger that it's time to come. That is, that, the, that the, the feast is ready. So you'd go to your guests and you'd say, listen, I told you it was on such and such a day. Now's the time. Now's the time to come. And so they would come. Come right away. The feast is ready. Now one more background piece. In the scriptures, Messiah's kingdom is portrayed as a banquet. It is portrayed as a banquet, a glorious banquet, a wonderful banquet to which God's people will someday be invited. Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6, Isaiah 25 and verse 6 speaks about Messiah's uh, kingdom as a banquet, Messiah's kingdom using the, the illustration of a banquet. Where he says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow. That's a, that's a ribeye steak with the bone in. That's what he's talking about, okay? It's going to be the best. Okay, choice pieces with the marrow and refined aged wine. You get the idea that it's going to be the very finest of ingredients that are used to put on this incredible banquet, which is Messiah's kingdom. And you are invited if you are a child of God. Conversely, conversely, if a person is excluded from that banquet, then they were said to have been cast out into darkness and misery, and that represents eternal judgment. For example, Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, I say to you, speaking to 
Israel, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying you will be excluded from the banquet. That is, you will be excluded from Messiah's kingdom. And to be outside of Messiah's kingdom, the only place outside of Messiah's kingdom is a place of darkness and weeping and gnashing and torment. All that is good is within his kingdom. Only that which is um, evil and dark is outside his kingdom. So, what do we do with all of this? Well, we start to put the pieces together. So here's the parable, right? The the kingdom of heaven, Messiah's kingdom, verse 2, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast. So, obviously, the feast represents Messiah's kingdom. What does that mean? Well, it means simply this, then, that the king in the parable here is God. The king is God, right? The son is Jesus. The son is Jesus. The slaves are God's human spokesmen who will go out and and make invitation to the kingdom. And then we won't get to it this week, but next. But down in verse 13, the angels are introduced, and uh, they are the servants uh, uh, who are are used to, to remove from the kingdom those who do not belong. But we'll deal with that next week. Now, there are, uh, in this account, and we'll read it here just momentarily, there are, there are a, a series of invitations, a series of invitations issued. And, and I think they represent uh, and even emphasize the various invitations that have gone to the Jewish people by God through the centuries. God has repeatedly invited his ancient people to come into Messiah's kingdom. And they have refused. So let's take a look at them. First invitation is what I'm calling the prior invitation. It's in verse 3. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast to his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. What you want you to see here is those who had been invited. Notice that. What that means is that when the uh, slaves that go out here in verse 3 to speak, they're already speaking to people who had previously been invited. Now, I said I, I told you that normally you get two invitations. You get the original early invitation to which you say, yes, I'll be there. And then you get the secondary invitation that says, now's the time. In the parable here, there are repeated invitations, okay, emphasizing the patience of God in this matter. So these people had already been invited. That is, they had already received an invitation to the Messiah's kingdom. uh, That it notifies them about the kingdom and it invites them to attend. And uh, this, I believe, accords very well with the Old Testament narrative that that the invitation to the kingdom was given in ancient days through Abraham. It was given through Abraham. It was given through Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 15 of Genesis, chapter 17 of Genesis. That that invitation was given. It was further given uh, through the uh, words to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the old invitation that had been out there and that the people had acknowledged. That's their first invitation. But you'll notice here in verse 3. He sends out his slaves again, uh, but they were unwilling to come. 
They were unwilling to come. Notice the, the verb here, willing. It's, it's, it, speaks about, um, it speaks about choice. And the idea is that they made a deliberate choice not to attend the, the banquet, the wedding feast that they had been invited to. One that had been given to them, that they had acknowledged they were, that it was theirs and they were going to come. But now they are not willing. Furthermore, the way the verb is constructed in the Greek, it isn't an imperfect tense verb. And it just means repetitive action. So the idea is that they are over and over and over again, continually invited. And they over and over and over again say, nope, I'm not coming. Nope, I'm not coming. Busy, sorry, not coming. Okay, repeated invitations and repeated refusals, deliberate refusals. I think it speaks about the work of the Old Testament prophets through the centuries. As you read through the scriptures of the Old Testament, repeatedly the prophets come to the ancient people of Israel and they speak to them. They call them to repentance, to prepare for Messiah's kingdom. And repeatedly, the people say, not interested, or they say, we are interested, but then they later prove to be uninterested. So this is ongoing process. The prior invitation, the, the repeated invitation. And then finally, verse 4, the final invitation. Third, the final invitation, verse 4. Again, Again, notice the patience of God in this. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, pay attention, look here, check it out. I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Again, he sends out his slaves. And he says, tell them, I have prepared my dinner. I prepared my dinner. Now, I'm, I'm not sure why the word is translated dinner here because it's really not dinner uh, in the sense of, of the banquet itself. This is not the feast of the banquet. This, the word actually uh, uh, refers to an to a early meal and a small meal. It's used in other places and it speaks of, of something like a breakfast or a, or a small lunch. You know, in, in Hobbiton, uh, elevensies, that sort of thing, you know. It's not the main deal, but it's something. It's something. And so uh, what he says is, listen, there's food ready. I have prepared some food for you. Beyond that, uh, my oxen and, and my, my fatted livestock, the idea is, is that the, you know, there's a lavish nature of this feast, right? We're not just you know, killing a couple of scrawny chickens. Everything is really uh, choice here, and it's all ready. It's been butchered. And the, and the feast is right at hand. Come and eat, and the, and the party is going to begin. The party is going to begin. Listen, the king has made at this point every conceivable preparation for his guests. Every conceivable preparation. Come have a snack, come have hors d'oeuvres, and the feast will begin. And the feast will begin. Now, the people have repeatedly ignored his invitations, right? Now the feast is at hand. The king sends out his slaves and he, and he says, listen, this is your final uh, notice here. This is the final appeal. And I think in the context here of the gospel as it unflows, I, I think what we need to see here is the ministry of John the Baptist. I think we need to see the ministry of John the Baptist. That it is John the Baptist that, it, that is coming to the nation to make that final appeal. 
For example, in, uh, earlier in the gospel, in, in Matthew, just be refreshed in this, Matthew chapter 3, Matthew 3, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Come, everything has been prepared, the feast is about to begin, the kingdom is at hand. Beyond that, and and, uh, I I think in the parable here, and and we'll talk about this in a moment, that uh, Jesus actually is playing two roles in this parable, I think it also includes the ministry of Jesus. For in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, speaking of Jesus, uh, beginning of his public ministry that, that, that occurs in Galilee after John has been imprisoned. Chapter 4 verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. On a verse 23, he's going throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. That is, he is giving them a taste of, of Messiah's kingdom through these miracles. So this is the message. It is the message of John the Baptist. It is the message of Jesus. One more over in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Again, he gives to them kingdom authority to do miracles that demonstrate the closeness of the kingdom of heaven. Messiah's kingdom is at hand. Then the uh, 12 apostles are named here. He says, verse 5, he sends them out. After instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is, you fill it in, at hand. It is at hand. All right? So... Back to the parable. Verse 4. He sends out other slaves. And he says, The dinner is ready. I've got something for you to eat. Come. We're about to begin. Or said another way, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is at hand. Now, as I said, I believe that in this parable, Jesus plays two roles. He plays the role as the son in verse 2. I also believe in verse 4 that he is part of the slaves that went out and made proclamation to the nation. And the reason I'm very comfortable saying that is because in reality, the, the, the parable is not so much about the son. He actually, uh, he passes off the pages or out of the story at the end of verse Two, it's really not about him. It's about the invitation to the wedding and, and the response to that invitation. So Jesus is introduced as the son in verse 2, but by the time of verse 4, he's not essential to the storyline anymore, and he can come back into the story as one of the slaves of God, right? The, the, uh, the suffering servant of God who will come and who will preach to the people. So how are they going to respond? How are they going to respond? How would you respond? How would you respond if you've been invited to partake in Messiah's kingdom? And, and you've been told repeatedly what a wonderful, glorious place this will be. There's, there's nothing like it. 
And not just once, but over and over and over and over again, you've been invited. And now they come and they say, listen, it was once far off. It is now at hand. How would you respond? Verses 5 and 6. But they paid no attention and went their own way. One to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. That's shocking. That is shocking. They have ignored the invitations repeatedly up to this point, but you think to yourself, surely now, surely now, But they ignore this final and urgent call as well. And the the way they ignore it is particularly offensive. Listen, the slave of the king represents the king. He's like the ambassador of the king. When he speaks, the king speaks. How you respond to him is how you are responding to your king, to your sovereign. And how do they respond? Verse 5. For the majority, they are too preoccupied with self-interest to be bothered with this invitation. Too preoccupied right one goes to his farm one to his business jesus is just using these as illustrations to speak about all the kinds of of worldly pursuits and they are legitimate worldly pursuits it is the it is the pursuit of life as it were and in this particular case the pursuit of business whether it be agricultural business or or merchandising sort of business it is their occupation they are they are consumed with their own occupation, their own, their own getting uh, along in life, uh, their own providing for their family, their own providing for their own desires and needs and wants and so forth, that they could not be bothered to respond to this invitation. They are consumed with life. They are preoccupied. And so preoccupied that they, want, they have no time for the invitation. Beloved, how like today that really is. Very few people claim to be atheists. Very, very few. But most people are too busy for Messiah's kingdom. Too preoccupied for Messiah's kingdom. Trusting either in their own inherent goodness... Or some other virtue. Perhaps the faith of a, of a parent or a grandparent. Whatever it might be. Too preoccupied. Too unconcerned. Can't be bothered. Yeah, 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 yeah. Someday, maybe. Someday. Verse 6, look at the other group. The rest 
That is, those that weren't too preoccupied. The rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. This is worse than indifference. Evidently, they're angered by the king's persistent invitations. Evidently, it, it, is, it has angered them to the point that they, they decide to silence the message. And will silence the message by silencing the messenger. So they mistreat them, even murdering them. Beloved, this is the history. This is the history of God's ancient people. First, they ignored. Up to and including, by the way, uh, John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles. This is what the majority of the nation did. They just ignored them. But for some, and, and primarily and initially the leadership, they, not, they, didn't, they didn't ignore. They, they actually responded with overt hostility. They ignored John the Baptist initially, but eventually they have a hand in his murder. Now, I'm not going to take the time to develop it with you, but, but you can mark this down. You can check it out on your own. It's really interesting because, you know, remember, John the Baptist is there. He's imprisoned, right? With Herod Antipas has him imprisoned, and Herod uh, has uh, his, his illicit wife's daughter dance, right? And he says, up to half my kingdom, I'll give you whatever you want. Well, if you read the account in Mark's gospel, well, particularly Mark chapter 6 and verse 21, it speaks of Herod's dinner guests, and it says among his dinner guests are the leading men of Galilee. Now, the leading men of Galilee would be the Jewish leadership of the, of, the, of the region of Galilee. And Galilee contained in the first century the greatest concentration of Jewish people in the entire world. That's where Judaism was concentrated in the first century. So it was the leadership of Judaism in Galilee who were dinner guests with Herod at the time he makes the vow. And we're told that because of his guests... Even though he is reluctant because he's afraid of the popular outcry of doing it, he carries through and he has John beheaded. They are culpable in this. If they wanted to protect him, they could have spoken up. But they did not. But they did not. And in in fact, in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 12, let me just show it to you there. Jesus coming down on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's talking about how he is going to be mistreated and ultimately killed himself by the leadership. And he says, verse 12, But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist ultimately died because the leadership of the nation wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. They got the Romans to do it, but they wanted him dead. They wanted him silenced. And that is exactly what will happen to Jesus. They will maneuver Pontius Pilate into murdering Jesus. It will be their scheme. 
They will get him crucified. John's gospel is very clear. John chapter 19, verses 12 to 15. Pontius Pilate wants to let him go. And the leadership says to him, if you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar. Because he makes himself out to be a king in opposition to Caesar. What they're threatening Pilate with is to, is to tell on uh, him to Rome that, that he has allowed someone to rise up and present themselves as an alternative to the king. Caesar. So they manipulate, they pressure Pilate into crucifying whom, a one whom he knows is an innocent man. Now listen with me, think with me. While Jesus was alive, no harm befell the apostles, right? No harm befalls them at all. They go here, they go there, they preach, they're rejected, but no harm befalls them. It is only after Pentecost when they go out, that the persecution begins to rise in earnest. And as you read through the book of Acts, what you see is an increasing level of violent hostility among the Jewish people to the gospel message. That opposition is summarized very well by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14, 15, 16, where he says the following. He says, For you, brethren, speaking to the believers in Thessalonica, became imitators of the churches of God, in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. First Thess chapter 2. Verses 14 through 16. Now, I need to say something here. There are those who, who accuse the writers of the New Testament of being anti-Semitic. Because as you read through this, you will read over and over again the Jews. The Jews. And, and they are spoken of as those that are, that are hostile to God. Those who, who are culpable in the murder of Messiah. Those that are opposed to all righteousness. And one could mistakenly come away with an understanding that somehow the writers here uh, hated Jewish people. Which would be kind of interesting in one sense because many of the writers were Jewish people. And so what they say is, well, it was a self-loathing and, and so forth. But listen, the, the, the Bible is not anti-Semitic because God is not anti-Semitic. But you need to understand what's going on. When it, when it speaks of the Jews in the New Testament, not every time, but, but frequently, particularly in John's gospel and forward into the book of Acts and, and out into the epistles, it is speaking first about the leadership of the nation of Israel that are hardened in their hostility to Messiah. They are the Jews. They are those who are hard-hearted towards God and his Messiah. That hard-heartedness begins to spill out. I told you last week, uh, uh, as, a, as a people go, so go their leadership. Their leadership is either a blessing or a judgment upon them. And so the, this, this leadership and active opposition, hard-hearted opposition to God's Messiah is a judgment upon a nation that was too preoccupied, too busy, unconcerned with the king when he came. Now, what will the king do about all this? What will the king do? What would you do 
If you were the king, how would you respond if your repeated, gracious, patient invitations are spurned over and over and over again? And not only that, finally, they take your your servants and, and they mistreat them, they persecute them, and ultimately murder them. What would you do? How would you respond? Verse 7, but the king was enraged. The king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Listen, beloved, there is a limit to the patience of God. There is a limit to the patience of God. There comes a time, there comes a place where God's patience expires. Where he has repeatedly and and graciously offered deliverance through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And people spurn it, people turn from it, people mock it. People even kill his spokesman. And yet he sends more and others. And graciously saves people. Because the truth of the matter is all of us have spurned him and deserve condemnation. But God in his mercy rescues some. But beloved, his patience runs out. It has its limits. It has its limits. And the limit has been reached here. How does the king respond to those who have ignored and mistreated his servants? These rebels, he pours out his wrath on them. Look how it's described. He sends his armies, destroys the murderers, sets their city on fire. Again, I think you must be drawn to the the reality that God sent and used the, the Romans as his rod of chastisement, as he had used the Babylonians and the Assyrians before him. To punish his ancient people. And in AD 70, four Roman legions under the command of Titus came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and tore down the temple so that not one stone remained upon another. And they killed the people, hundreds of thousands of them, and burned the place. And the nation was scattered. We'll go over to chapter 24 and verse 2. Listen, this judgment is right there. Jesus prophesying here openly, directly in chapter 24, verse 2. He said to them, do not, do you not see all these things? Talking about the buildings of the temple there in verse 1. Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Listen, I have stood at the base of the temple mount and I have seen the stones that the Romans pushed off and they fell and shattered the street below. You can touch them even to this day. 2,000 years later, they're still there. They scraped it flat and threw all that rubble off the platform. There's a clear and open prediction here, I believe here in chapter 22 and in verse 7, there is another more veiled Prediction of this same horrific event. Horrific event. 
The ancient writers say that somewhere north of a million Jews died. What do I make of all this? What do I make of all of this? Well, quickly, a few things. This is what stands out, I think, for me, at least at this point. First, and I've said it already to you a couple times, the patience of God. I don't think you can read this without seeing the patience of God. Repeatedly, God has called to his ancient people to call him to himself, to enjoy the abundance of Messiah's kingdom. God was patient with them. God is patient with you. He is patient with me. Listen, if you are here this morning and you are not a citizen of the kingdom, you are not a child of God, you have not surrendered your life to Christ, you are receiving another invitation. You have received past invitations. You are receiving another one even now. God is patient. But listen to me, friend. There is a limit to his patience. It will expire. And when it expires, there will be nothing but certain fury and judgment that will come upon you. Do not spurn God. Come to the Savior. God is patient. Beyond that, his people were unresponsive. Unresponsive in the face of the repeated calls to believe. It also stands out to me the violence of the leadership of the nation of Israel in opposing the message. Again, as I said, through the later parts of the gospel uh, and certainly through the book of Acts and, and on out into the epistles, even through to the book of Revelation. That is the record of the, the, the biblical history. That is the record of secular history beyond. They have been implacably opposed to God and his Messiah. Even in Israel today. They won't even say his name. That man, they will say. They will not say his name. The destruction. The destruction stands out to me. That that glorious, marvelous temple of Herod completely obliterated. The people scattered. God's judgment comes, and when it comes, it's fierce. It's a flood that cannot be held back. How do I respond? How do we respond in the midst of all of this? Well, I think we have to begin by responding with compassion. Listen, it would be very, very easy to sit here this morning feeling smug about yourself. Looking down on the Jewish people. I've had people say to me, they had their chance, pastor. They had their chance. The gospel is for the Gentiles. They had their chance. Oh, beloved, listen to me. That's not God's attitude. That's not God's attitude. God has not given up on his ancient people. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, Paul says. That was not Paul's understanding. In the Gospel of Romans, Paul says in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that his heart is full of compassion for his people. He would surrender his own life if it would bring them into redemption. Chapter 10 and verse 1, he, he prays for their salvation. This is the apostle to the Gentiles. We need to have compassion for the Jewish people. We need to pray for the Jewish people. The Psalms instruct us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will never have peace 
until Messiah returns and, and redeems his people and establishes his kingdom of peace there. But that is his capital city. But pray for the peace of, of Jerusalem. Pray for the enlightenment of the Jewish people, that their eyes would be opened, that at the reading of Moses, the veil would be lifted and they would see and believe. Have compassion. Have fear and trembling at the blackness of the human heart. Have fear and trembling at the blackness of the human heart because, listen, your heart is just as black. You are just as capable of willful disobedience. Just as capable. And respond finally in thanksgiving, praise, and humility. Because if you know the Lord Jesus this morning, you know him because of the grace of God. He has overcome the blackness of your heart. He has been willing to overlook your frequent rejections of his gracious invitation. How many times have you slighted him? And yet he did not give up on you. He drew you to himself. This is the Thanksgiving weekend. Let your heart be filled with thanksgiving. Filled with thanksgiving. That God has saved you in Christ Jesus. And let that humble you. Let it humble you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in this, uh, this section of Matthew's gospel where we come face to face with these difficult realities. It's unnerving and it's uncomfortable. Because when we're honest, this kind of, of unbelief reveals the magnitude of the wickedness of the human heart. And we have a human heart. Oh, our Father, how we thank you that you have opened our eyes to the Savior, that you have drawn us to yourself, that you have filled us with love for Christ. And how we pray on this Thanksgiving weekend for those family and friends who do not know the Savior. And Father, we pray even now that you would do a work in us to help us to be bold, to speak to them about Christ, to be willing to be that slave, that messenger, to fear not the rejection or the consequence, but to speak openly, courageously, lovingly, winsomely for Christ. At the same time, knowing our Father that you must act. You must act to, to unite the, mess, the message with a heart of faith. Oh God, do your mysterious work and save those whom we love. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, beloved.